Okay, so last week we talked about the natures of Christ, specifically how Christ is um, two natures in one person. So there's one person, Jesus Christ, um, that's 100% God, fully divine in every way, possessing all the divine attributes, co-equal in glory and power and co-eternal and all those things, while simultaneously, ever since the incarnation, taking upon himself a human nature, and he's 100% human, so he talks like us and, and walks like us and experiences life like us and um, just that mind-blowing reality of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And today we're talking about the reason why Jesus did all that. Like that's a pretty mind-blowing concept that God took on human flesh, that, that God would take upon himself a human nature. And now we're going to study tonight why he would do that like what he was intending to do specifically the work of christ this one like kind of seeing it as one big accomplishment that jesus did in coming to this earth that's what we're going to look at and just to frame our conversation i wanted to read from the um, nicene creed this is like the middle portion of it it's not the whole thing from uh, 325 a.d um, it should be on the screen, it's on your papers too, but this is just a really good summary of the incarnation and then the uh, work of Christ we're going to study tonight. It says, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father and he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. So, beautiful statement here, an ancient document kind of just summarizing the Christian faith. And so what we see here is that Jesus came down from heaven, was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man. That's what we talked about last week, that phrase right there. And then he lived his life, obviously. We're going to talk about Jesus' life. And then was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. There's his death. And then the, res and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures. There's his resurrection. And ascended into heaven. There's his ascension. And is seated at the right hand of the Father. There's his session. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead. There's his return whose kingdom shall have no end. So that's a, just a brief outline of what we're going to talk about tonight. Um, so number one, we are going to talk about the life of Christ. Last week, in discussing the, the human nature of Jesus, we talked about his sinlessness. If you remember that, he committed no sin. There's no deceit found in his mouth. And I want to talk about that a little bit more this week, but specifically about the concept of the active obedience of Christ. That's that theological term um, that's used, Christ's active obedience. Uh, if I had to guess, you, you may or may not have heard this term before. I'm guessing probably not. Uh, there's this one great old theologian named J. Gresham Machen, and his last words, he sent it in a telegram to this other theology professor, John Murray, and it said, 
um, so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. Those were his last words, um, which is just beautiful when you know the concept. But it's just amazing to me that in his last moments, this, this great theologian was holding on to this idea of active obedience. And today in our churches, uh, we might not even know what that is. And so uh, hopefully this will be a beautiful truth for you because obviously it was so comforting to Machen on his deathbed. So the active obedience of Christ is referring to the fact that Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life every single day of his life. So don't just think about him not committing sin, but think about him achieving righteousness. Uh, like he's taken a test and he made an A, like a, a perfect A plus with his life. Every single day, Jesus woke up and said yes to God's will. He resisted temptation. He fulfilled the law. Consider at Jesus' baptism. So if you remember in uh, Matthew chapter 3, we talked about this a little shorter version in Mark. But in Matthew 3, Jesus says, hey, John, I want you to baptize me. John says, why should I baptize you? Shouldn't it be the way around? And he says in Matthew 3.15, but Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. You see that there's this intentionality in Jesus that he is living his life to fulfill a standard of righteousness. He sees his life as a test that he is wanting to get an A plus in, an A plus plus, a perfect score of righteousness. So the point of the doctrine of the active obedience of Christ is that Jesus didn't just die for you. We focus so much on the death of Christ. That's a good thing. Hopefully you hear that emphasis um, in my teaching. But sometimes we don't think about the fact that Jesus didn't just die for you. He also lived for you. Have you considered that every single day of his earthly life, he woke up and obeyed God's law. He fulfilled a perfect righteousness. And this was part of the reason he came. And here's why the active obedience of Christ is such good news. And if that word active is throwing you off, it's going to make a little more sense when it's contrasted with passive obedience here in a second. But basically it's just he actively chose to fulfill God's law. He actively chose to live this righteous life. And the beautiful thing about the active righteousness, the active obedience of Jesus Christ is that at salvation, you don't just receive a blank slate. That's not what the work of Christ provides. At, at salvation, um, the work of Christ doesn't just provide a second chance or a new leaf or anything like that. But at salvation, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you receive his righteousness as a gift. That's really good news. So all of Jesus' life, he's fulfilling this active obedience. He's obeying God's law. And then at salvation, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, all that righteousness that he achieved is applied and credited to your account. So you're not just given a blank slate, a second chance, but you're given an A+, a perfect righteousness. Let's see what the word says. Isaiah 61.10 prophesies of this. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and a bride adorns herself with her jewels. So Jesus, in his day-to-day -day life, um, 
sewed up this robe of righteousness with his choices, his works, his deeds, his resisting temptation. And then at salvation, Jesus gives you that robe and you wear the robe and it becomes your righteousness. Philippians 1.11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Philippians 3.9, and be found in him, in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Martin Luther would call this an alien righteousness, a righteousness outside of ourselves, not a righteousness that we produce, because we can never do that. We're sinful. We've, we've fallen short of the glory of God. But a righteousness that Jesus achieved. And then when we put our faith in Christ and are united with him by faith, his righteousness is given to us. It's a gift righteousness. It's a, he clothes us in that robe of righteousness. That's why um, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. That's the cross, right? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So this righteousness of God that Jesus Christ achieved in his active obedience in his earthly life is given to us so much so that we become the righteousness of God when we put our faith in Christ and are made to be in him. So this is hard to realize. It's difficult for us to gra grasp our minds around it. But when you put your faith in Christ, you're not just simply forgiven you're not just simply um, given a new chance but you are seen as righteous as jesus christ in god's sight that's what it means to be justified you're declared righteous and that's not just made up but it's a gift given to you that jesus himself achieved in his daily life of righteousness and this should absolutely revolutionize our relationship with god because it shows us just how steady and objective our relationship with God is. It's not built upon our performance of the day. Isn't that good news? Like you had a bad day, okay, God's mad at you. You had a good day, God's a little more pleased with you. But instead, your relationship with God is dependent upon the active obedience of Christ. He achieved in every single area, and he has given you that righteousness, and that's how God sees you. So consider uh, the baptism of Jesus again as we close with this, um, this one point. Jesus gets baptized, Holy Spirit descends upon a dove, and um, there's a voice that comes out from heaven. What does the voice say? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The beauty of the active obedience of Christ and union with Christ through faith in Christ is that God says the same thing about you now because Jesus has given you his righteousness. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So with that beautiful truth, we can say with J. Gresham Machen, thank God for that active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. We could have never achieved that perfect standard. So if you think about Deuteronomy 27, um, um, there's, the, there's these two mountains um, side by side, and it's like here is all the blessings that will come through obedience. You're going you're gonna to have life in the land. Things are going to be great. You know, I want to be near you. And then on the other side of this other mountain is all the curses. Uh, if you disobey me, if you break my covenant, if you leave me, you're going to be cursed. You're going to be cut out of the land. All these bad things are going to happen. And there's these two kind of consequences of the law. There's blessings if you obey, and there's consequences if you disobey. And so the first point in Jesus' life is that Jesus perfectly obeyed, and we get the benefits of that obedience. 
But as you probably well know since you're here, we all have broken God's law and deserve his penalty. We deserve the curse of the law of disobedience. And that's what we see in the death of Christ in our, in our next point the, in the work of Christ, his death. So the flip side of active obedience is the passive obedience of Christ. So if active obedience is Jesus Christ perfectly fulfilling the precepts of the law, then passive obedience is Jesus receiving the penalties of the law. That makes sense why it's called passive obedience because he is simply taking the penalty. He's taking the punishment. He's taking the wrath upon himself on the cross. And that's what Jesus accomplishes when he hangs on the cross, receiving the punishment for sin as our substitute. My favorite word to sum up this uh, doctrine of passive obedience is found in Romans 3.25, where it says, Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. If you have the NIV, it probably says atoning sacrifice. Um, that's fine, but propitiation is like a better, more you know, exact translation. Put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So this word propitiation means a sacrifice that exhausts wrath. A sacrifice that absorbs wrath. So if you disobey God's law, you deserve to be punished. You have the wrath of God revealed against you. Because uh, Romans 1.18 says the wrath of God is revealed um, from heaven against all unrighteousness. So God feels a holy anger towards all sin. We've sinned, we're sinners, and thus God feels holy wrath towards us. He's not passive towards sin. He's wrathful towards sin because of his holiness. So this word propitiation is a sacrifice that soaks up God's wrath on your behalf so that God can be fully for you. So God is against you in your sin. He has wrath against you. A propitiation is where God intentionally pours out his wrath upon a certain sacrifice so there's no more wrath left and he can be for the person that sacrifice was for. So Jesus on the cross bore the wrath from God that you deserved. Jesus didn't just die as an example of sacrificial love. He didn't just simply pay your debt. So that's a um, there's expiation, which that is um, taking away guilt. That's how we typically think about the cross. Is we had a debt, Jesus paid the debt, and that's true and good and biblical. That's expiation. But propitiation is more the relational side of it. Um, consider if you had a loved one who gets murdered. It's hard for the dark example, but it's only thing sufficient. Okay, you go to court, it all gets even, and they say, okay, you owe this person $13 million, debt's cleared, everything's over. Okay, maybe perhaps the debt's paid for that crime, but the emotional anger and wrath that you would feel to that person would not ever be, it would still be there. So it might be like, okay, so we're good legally, but emotionally, I'm still pretty upset. Right? This is why this word propitiation is such good news. Because the cross isn't just expiation. It doesn't just pay off the legal debt. But it's propitiation. It bears God's wrath. And so it absorbs God's wrath. It exhausts God's wrath. Um, as we sang in the song, um, 
And on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Which means that God doesn't have wrath towards you anymore because it's already been poured out on the Son. It's really good news. We see this uh, in the Bible. It's good news, right? Isaiah 53, we read this on Sunday, verses 4 through 5. says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. You know, it says um, in verse 12, He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So we had sin and Jesus bore it in his body. As we read in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he became sin. This is not just the, the, the debt owed, but this is the, the anger God felt was completely satisfied by Christ. Galatians 3, 10 through 14. This is a great way to sum up this idea of what Jesus accomplished in his death. It says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, curse be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. That's exactly what we're talking about with that Deuteronomy 27, the, the curse side of the covenant. Okay, you don't do every single thing. If you don't obey every single law, you're cursed and you're under a curse, God's wrath. Um, it goes on, verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Listen to this, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So Jesus died, and in dying, he becomes sin. He becomes the curse. He bears the wrath of God and thus satisfies it. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He bore them himself so that we can die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And so I pray this leads you to love the cross because what this means is since God the Father has poured out all of his holy righteous wrath out upon his son on the cross in your place, that means there's no wrath for you left. There's no anger that God feels for you anymore because he's already completely satisfied all the anger and all the wrath and all the punishment that you deserved on the cross. So you can look to God and say, God, I know you're not wrathful towards me. I know you don't want to punish me. I know you don't want to separate yourself from me because you've already satisfied your righteous wrath on the cross through Christ. And when you realize the punishment that you deserved was nothing less than eternity in hell, and you realize the cross has paid for your sins and fixed your relationship with God, because there is the, there is the element that you had a debt that needed to be paid. Colossians 2.14 says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So on the cross he took all your sin debt, all your punishment that you deserved, and he put it on the cross. It's been paid. But not only that, but through this propitiation, through Christ's death, we've become reconciled to the Father through the blood of Jesus Christ. 
where we were um, alienated from God. We were hostile. We were separated from God. We weren't on speaking terms with God. He was angry with us. But now through the cross, we can be reconciled with God and have a relationship with him. The cross brings reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5.18 All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. So, is that not good news? The work of Christ. That our debt's been paid. Our relationship has been restored. We've been reconciled with God because Jesus Christ has stood in our place as our substitutionary atonement. You know, atonement's this idea of bringing together again. Um, bringing forgiveness, paying the debt. And so now we can look to God knowing that if you've put your faith in Christ, you're fully forgiven of your sin. You're, you're free from the wrath of God. You're reconciled with the Father forever and you're perfectly righteous in His sight due to the active and passive obedience of Jesus Christ. Now, great news. Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus died a substitutionary death. But how do we know it worked? Right? He, he lived, he died. But how do we know like it, it actually took? You know, you, you take some medicine, you're like, I hope that, did that, did that do anything? Or, uh, you know, uh, Chelsea, Chelsea took a COVID test and it was negative and Madeline tested negative for the flu today. But when we took it, it was like, well, did we do it right? Did it actually work? Because it, it got all these little things or whatever. It's hard to deal with all that. Um, how do we know that the, the life of Christ and the death of Christ actually was um, successful? That's, all, that, that's when we turn to the resurrection. The resurrection is proof that all of this was accepted. I just want to read the account. Matthew 28, 1 through 10. Um, says, now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly, tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. We know that the death of Christ is good news because of the resurrection of Christ. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, the death of Christ would not be good news. Now, I want to explain the significance of the resurrection. That might seem really obvious to you, but it, it's something I, um, as a younger believer, kind of struggled with. It was like I could really spell out the reasons why um, the death of Christ was meaningful. I could say, yeah, forgiveness of sins and Sin, dead, penalty. That all made sense to me. But the resurrection was just like, well, this is good news. I mean, I'm glad he's alive, but what's the, the significance? And I hope I can help out a little bit. So what does the resurrection of Jesus Christ declare? I got four declarations of the resurrection. Number one, the resurrection was a declaration that Jesus was who he said he was. So Jesus very clearly said, hey, I'm the son of God. Hey, 
I'm the Messiah. We talked about that on Sunday. But the resurrection was this approval stamp that Jesus was telling the truth. That he wasn't just a charlatan. He wasn't just a, um, you know, this, this liar. He, he was this person who was telling the truth. And Romans 1, 4 says, and was declared to be the Son of God in power. So Jesus was declared to be the Son of God according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So first of all, the resurrection declares Jesus really is the Christ. Jesus really is the Son of God. Number two, the resurrection was a declaration that God accepted the work of Christ. So Jesus lives this perfect life of active obedience, dies this substitutionary death um, in passive obedience, and the resurrection is God's declaration that he is accepting the sacrifice of Christ. So that's how we can know it can work. Why does, this, why does the, the work of Christ work in our lives? Because the resurrection proves that God accepted it. We see this in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, which says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. You see that? So if, if Christ wasn't raised, all the work of Christ was for nothing. It's not, you have no hope. It's futile. You're still in your sins. But since Christ has been raised, that's God's declaring that he's accepted the sacrifice of Christ and the work of Christ. And you are not in your sins anymore. You're forgiven of them. Uh, he says something similar in Romans 4.25. Who is delivered up. Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So since Jesus Christ has been raised, we can be justified because God has accepted the work. Number three. The resurrection was a declaration of Jesus' victory. This is the, uh, the concept of what you know, uh, theologians will call it Christus Victor. Sometimes um, Christus Victor is emphasized at the expense of what we just taught, penal substitutionary atonement. That, oh, Jesus wasn't bearing the wrath of God. He was really just winning this victory. Now, obviously, we deny that because of the Bible. Um, but, obviously, there's a... There's a sense where the resurrection is Jesus' victory over the world, over sin, over death, over Satan, over hell. So this resurrection is a declaration that Jesus has conquered these things. He's beaten them. He is victorious. We see this in 1 Corinthians 15, 55. Sorry, Steve, this is a late edition. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of... Death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in the context of this chapter, is all about the resurrection. So through the resurrection, there's this declaration that Jesus has won. Jesus wins. Finally, the resurrection is a declaration of what will happen to all who are united to Christ. So the resurrection is good news. Um, because Jesus rising from the dead is a foreshadowing of what's going to happen to us. The Bible's really clear on this. Romans 6, 4 through 5. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So. Jesus rose from the dead. We're going to rise from the dead. 1 Corinthians 6, 14. God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. 
1 Corinthians 15, um, 20 through 22, that chapter I just said was about the resurrection. It says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So he's just the first fruits of the, the harvest that's coming of all the saints in Christ rising from the dead. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. So Christ is the first one to rise from the dead. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us also with Jesus and bring you into his presence. Okay, so the resurrection is, is a declaration that Jesus is who he said he was, that God has accepted the work of Christ, that it's a declaration of Jesus' victory over his enemies, sin, death, hell, the grave. And finally, it's a declaration of what will happen to us. So you can look at the grave, you can look at death, you can look at the future and say, I know what's going to happen to me because of the work of Christ. He resurrected from the dead. I'm united with him by faith. I'm going to raise from the dead as well. All right, next point is the ascension. The ascension is the visible going up of Jesus' human nature into heaven. Jesus' body went to a place. See this at the end of Luke. I want to read these two accounts. Luke 24. This is the very, very end, starting in verse 50. It says, And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. So um, Luke gives another account of this in Acts chapter 1. This is verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? It's just a perfect example of what we're talking about with the um, misrepresentation of what it meant to be Christ. So Jesus resurrects like, okay, so is it time to bring Israel back? Is it time to bring the kingdom? Uh, that's just where their minds were. Verse 7, he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is not, I mean, we talk about the life of Christ and the act of obedience. That's not talked about too much. The death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, talked about all the time, and that's a good thing. But the ascension, we really don't talk about that much, right? I mean, that's not one of the things we're constantly mentioning. Uh, and that's probably because the resurrection and the death are the real turning points of the work of Christ. And the ascension is kind of like more of just like an like a obvious consequence. Jesus rose from the dead. Okay, now he's going to... Go up back. Does that make sense? But I want to emphasize and ask what the significance of the ascension is. What does that teach us? What does that show us about the work of Christ? Number one, it's a clear indication that Jesus' earthly ministry has ended. He has gone up. It's a clear sign. You know, 
we're, we're not to expect that to continue like that. He's not walking around healing people. He has gone up to heaven. Number two, um, it's the end of his humble estate of glory. No longer is his glory going to be hidden. You know, he walked this earth and people could just not know God was around. You know, people denied it. People assumed he was just a normal carpenter because his glory was so hidden. It reminds me of Philippians chapter 2, um, verses 5 through 11, which says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. There's incarnation. There's taking on human flesh. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's his, you know, um, his active obedience and his passive obedience there in verse 8. Therefore, verse 9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So verses 10 through 11 haven't happened yet. But verse 9 has happened. Okay, and it's happened through the resurrection and the ascension. Christ has been highly exalted and given the name above every name. So, he's not here in his earthly ministry anymore, but also he's not in this lowly estate. He, he has humbled himself. He did humble himself to the point of death, but now he's been highly exalted. He's not walking around on earth anymore, but he has ascended to heaven. Specifically, um, this is really encouraging and comforting. In John 14, um, Jesus says, let, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. So Jesus says, hey, I'm going to prepare a place and I'm going to come back and bring you to be with me. And finally, um, with all that said, it, his ascension sets the pattern for his return. That's what Acts 1.11 says, as we read, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So, in the ascension... Jesus' physical body goes from earth to heaven. And then in the return of Christ, we're going to talk about that here in a second, Jesus' physical body is going to come from heaven yet again to earth. But first, before we talk about the return of Christ, we need to answer the question, where is Jesus now? Of course, um, Jesus being 100% God is omnipresent so you could say theologically correct Jesus is here among us when we're two or three are gathered right he's also you know with Chelsea and Madeline right now he's, he's everywhere but Jesus physical body ascended to heaven to an actual place where does the Bible say that he is Jesus was clear in predicting where he would be Matthew 26 64 says Jesus said to him you have said so but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven. 
So he says, hey, I'm about to be seated at the right hand of God. Then Peter on the day of Pentecost is preaching in Acts 2. And he says, Acts 2 verses 23 and following. Not 23 and following. That's a big passage. Sorry, Steve. Um, Start in verse 32. I think I just flipped those numbers around. Um, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. And having received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, quoting Psalm 110, we talked about this in our prophecy, um, prophecies of Christ, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the houses of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. So the New Testament's clear. Where is Jesus currently right now? Seated at the right hand of the Father. And what this means is that Jesus is in the position of power over the entire universe. Jesus is ruling and reigning over the church and over the entire universe in complete glory and power and sovereignty. That's what Jesus is doing right now. He has resurrected from the dead. He has ascended and he has ascended to the right hand of the Father where he is currently ruling and reigning. Ephesians 1, 20-22 says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age so it is in this age but also in the one to come and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church you see that so Ephesians 1 is saying Jesus is currently at the right hand of God above every single power above every single authority above every single name in this age and the one to come Hebrews 10 12 through 13 But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, um, that's passive obedience, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Another reference to Psalm 110.1. 1 Peter 3.22, when he had gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Here's the picture that the New Testament tells of Jesus Christ. He is in charge of all things, of angels, authorities, powers, of um, all rule and authority and dominion over the church, over every single nation, over the entire universe. Jesus has been put in charge because he has been ascended and highly exalted to the right hand of the Father. Uh, Now we're going to talk more about this next week, um, specifically about what Jesus' ministry is like right now to us. Um, in his offices, as we study the offices of Christ, prophet, priest, and king. But isn't it just comforting to realize that Jesus is in control, um, that he is ruling and reigning the universe? That's what the Bible teaches. He's seated at the right hand of God. He's, you know, in this world, in life in this world that feels so out of control, just to realize it's not out of control, that there's someone seated in power, and it's the risen and reigning Christ. Finally, last part of his work. So everything that we've talked about um, so far 
has happened or is happening. Right? He, he has lived the perfect life. He has died. He has resurrected. He has ascended. He is currently, you know, the session. He's see, seated on the throne. Um, this one hasn't happened yet. Um, his return. Talked about in 1 Thessalonians 4. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. Physical. The Lord himself is going to descend from heaven just like he ascended. He's going to descend with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, it says in verse 18, one of the easier um, commands to obey, encourage one another with these words. It's easy to be encouraged with this. Titus 2.13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that Jesus is going to physically return to this earth. And sorry if you're wanting a full breakdown of eschatology. It's not going to happen tonight, okay? Maybe you're relieved, maybe you're sad, I don't know. But Jesus is going to physically return to this earth. Two things I want to highlight, to judge the living and the dead. And to bring our salvation to complete perfection. We saw the judge, the living, and the dead in that night, um, the Nicene Creed we read at the beginning. That scriptural language, 2 Timothy 4.1 says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. Living and the dead. Um, if you remember um, when we talked about marisms in Psalm 121, I think it's the sermon I preached in um, January. So if it says God made the heavens and the earth two extremes, um, really just means those two things and everything in between, right? So if it's like God's with you day and night, okay, what else is there between? It's, that means he's with you all the time. So to say Jesus Christ is going to judge the living and the dead really covers everyone that's ever existed. Does that make sense? If, if, if Every single living person at the time of his return and every single person who's ever died. So therefore, it means Jesus is going to judge every single person. Your favorite celebrity, the most horrific person in history, um, your, your next door neighbor, every single human being is going to stand before the physical Christ who's been ruling and reigning the universe, resurrected from the dead, and they're going to give an account for their life and he's going to judge them. Pretty amazing. Um, and it's hopeful. All the wrongs in this world will be righted. No sin will be left unpunished. Every sin will either be punished on the cross or in hell. Um, while Jesus is the perfect judge and righteousness will be done. But then also there's this idea that it's going to bring our salvation to complete perfection. We enjoy our salvation now, but it's not, um, it's not perfected, is it? Um, we have been freed from the, the penalty of sin. Right? But we still experience the power of sin somewhat in our lives. And we definitely experience the presence of sin. But when Jesus returns, there will never be penalties of sin anymore. There will never be the power of sin anymore. And there will never be the presence of sin anymore. 
Sin will be completely eliminated and our salvation will be forever and finally perfected. Philippians 3, 20 through 21 says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from heaven we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to even subject all things to Himself. So Jesus has the authority over all things, and by His power and authority, He's going to change us to be like Him and His glory. And our salvation will be perfect. We'll never be tempted by sin, never be affected by sin. We'll live in perfect joy forevermore. It reminds me, Philippians 1, 6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So our salvation, when Jesus comes at that day, will be perfectly complete. As 1 Thessalonians 4, 18 says, Therefore, encourage one another with these words, specifically in verse 17, that we will always, 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 world without end, be with the Lord. This Jesus who is so amazing and so adequate in his work because of his perfect life and his active obedience, because of his substitutionary death and his passive obedience, because of his resurrection from the dead and the hope that it brings, because of his ascension to the right hand of God where he's ruling and reigning currently, because of his return. And when he returns, he's going to set all things right and we will be with Jesus forever. In a perfect world with nothing hindering us in any of our relationships where we will see Jesus face to face. And it's all because of the work of Christ. I hope you're thankful for that tonight. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes so that we can behold wondrous things out of your law. Jesus, thank you for what you've done. Jesus, we can't perfectly obey the law for one day. You did it for 33 years perfectly. God, thank you for that. Jesus, thank you for your death. Thank you for your resurrection, your ascension. Jesus, thank you that you're in charge right now. Sometimes it's hard to see. Sometimes it's hard to believe. But you are at the right hand of God currently. Um, you see us. You're working for us. You're turning all things for good. Um, give us faith in that. And Jesus, we just ask for you to come quickly. God, we see wickedness in the world. God, we see hurt. We see suffering. God, will you come set things right? God, we put our hope in you. You're our blessed hope, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We praise you for the work of Christ and what you've done for us um, through your um, life, death, and resurrection, all that's included in that. We praise you for it. Fill our hearts with it. Give us confidence in it. Help us tell others. In your name, Jesus. Amen.